I was um, <clears throat> I was just at the Lost Coast, too. <laughs> and uh, Dara wasn't joking about the whole sand situation. We uh, we walked for like eight minutes and then stopped for lunch. <laughs> but I could picture the eminent Ayananda Bodhi offering a butt push eight miles in. I got the I got the joy. I got the joy real clear. Um, but this evening you know who's on the mic. Captain Buzzkill. <laughs> That was a test to see which of them would laugh louder <laughs> so I know who my enemies are. <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, we do. I do talk about suffering a lot. Um, but that's because I care, care a lot about, um, about its absence. So um opening opening to um to wisdom opening to wisdom and love who can you trust when they talk about love um feel like you need a lot of of moral credibility and it's not the only way to cultivate moral credibility, but one of the ways is when you uh, endure a great deal of hardship and you persist, you stay on message, you stay on message, uh, the message of love. This is Thich Nhat Hanh in conversation with Bell Hooks talking about Martin Luther King. So uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, um, Martin Luther King was among us as a brother, a friend, as a leader. He was able to maintain that love. When you touch him, you touch a bodhisattva, for his understanding and love was enough to hold everything to him. He tried to transmit his insight and his love to the community, but maybe we have not received it enough. He was trying to transmit the best things to us, his goodness, his love, his non-duality. Because we had clung so much to him as a person, we did not bring the essence of what he was teaching into our community. So now that he's no longer here, we are at a loss. We have to be aware that the crucial transmission he was making was not the transmission of power, of authority, of position, but the transmission of the Dharma. It means love. It's from 2000.
So practice, one way of thinking about practice is that we're uh, turning, turning our heart into a kind of work, work of art. And there's no limit to how beautiful art can be. And maybe you even feel it sitting there, walking, being careful. Maybe you can feel it, that kind of the art being developed. There was um, an interview with a novelist and the novelist was, uh, was asked like, um, does literature change people? And, and if it does, how? And um, writer said, um, I don't think people change very much to the extent that people change at all. It's because of some encounter that has love in it. It it is hard. It's hard to change. It's hard to grow. And if we do it, love will be involved. Love will be involved. And the cruel irony, perhaps, is that um, the people we most want to change are the ones we tend to hate most. Yeah? And yet we know, we know hate is the single worst way to support somebody in changing. And maybe even we hate ourselves. We, we try to um, hate ourselves into a new form, hate ourselves into growth. Like we're, we're kind of running some um, behavioral modification program on, on ourselves, you know, and with, with hatred as the, as the stick. But um, love will be involved. There's a character from um, Dostoevsky who said something like, um, if God doesn't exist, everything is permitted. And, um, and I get that, I get that fear. Um, but to my mind, it, it's almost the reverse, actually. Uh, if this life is what we have, if we are living in the blink between the two halves of all the time there is, what could make more sense than, than love?
our, our afterlife, the, the kind of legacy we leave, the trace, the trace of our life, just like memory leaves a trace in us, the trace of our life. What will matter is the legacy of care, of kindness, of, of love. That when people are dying, that's all they care about. That's the only consolation. That's the only consolation. I left love behind. Yeah. I, I was always a, an aversive type. Um, I even as a even as just a kid, young. I don't know how young, but I was just kind of perpetually disappointed, you know. And um, and it was this combination of like being a, a perceptive kid with zero equanimity, you know, like zero. And that combination, we've known that combination at some point during this retreat, noticing a lot, resisting all. Yeah, that's painful. And even now, you know, it's like, of course, I talk about equanimity a lot because in a way, you know, in a way, you know, we teach what we're trying to remember ourselves. Yeah. I, I was so... Um, so sensitive to to alienation and um, and it, it's it started to look a bit like social social anxiety and I, I think it's true there's there's an element of of my conditioning in that uh, um, but I, it actually runs deeper than than just social. Anxiety was something like um, being very sensitive to the absence of love in relationships, in families, in schools, in communities, at parties. It was like if if I didn't sense like uh, this basic ambiance of love. I, the effect on me, just, just me, my own conditioning, but the effect on me was something like shame, you know, and, and uh, no doubt there's some hypersensitivity in it, but, um, but, but even still, uh, it's just, um, to be in fields where love is not, um, kind of honored is very painful, very alienating. And um, amidst the, the intensity of, uh, you know, just, just my own experience of just the intensity of the human condition and the fact that no one was really talking about it, you know? And, you know, if I had to describe it and retrospectively it would be something like I was kind of like wondering it like 
am I, is the first noble truth my personal failing? Yeah. Is this how it is for everybody? And um, it grew, grew into a certain kind of uh, cynicism and um, turning, yeah, kind of just suspicious about, about love or something. And uh, my uh, first, you know, deep encounter with, with practice was, um, you know, just after college and um, I was working in a um, residential treatment center and with uh, severe, severely troubled adolescent boys and um, uh, who's, you know, the psychiatric acuity was high enough that they, they were not, couldn't be at, a, at, a, at home. And, um, and I, I remember loving those kids and that work and it was, but I didn't even like have any access to my, you know, to my inner life and would just sort of leave it all on the table each day after work. And I, I remember one night I came home and it was two new roommates. It is in LA who, who wanted to have um, a housewarming, they called it a housewarming party, but that was only so that I wouldn't freak me out that they were having a meditation group, you know? So I'm like just a wreck from like this super intense work, which incidentally I was like dramatically underqualified to do, um, but was trying hard. And, um, and I just like remember just like kind of bounding in the door and they're sitting around like candlelight talking about love. Yeah. And um, it was such a, there was such a beautiful scene and I kind of, um, yeah, just, just stayed actually. I, I would kind of just stayed and kept going with it. And when I first started encountering some, some of my teachers, um, I almost couldn't believe the kind of, you know, the love I was witnessing and, you know, just the sense of like, oh yeah, their, their, their heart really is a kind of work of art, not perfection or anything like that, but just like, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. And, um, I kind of had a, a dim sense that something like that might exist, but I, I honestly was like, yeah, just skeptical that it did. And um, there's so much poignancy in recognizing goodness. Just like recognizing it, letting it resonate. And we recognize, of course, because it's in us in some way. And goodness is, yeah, reverberating with goodness. 
William James. The potentialities of development in human souls are unfathomable. The saints with their extravagance of human tenderness are the great torchbearers of this belief in the sacredness of everyone. The world's not yet with them, so often seem in the midst of the world's affairs to be preposterous. Yet they are animators of potentialities of goodness, which but for them would lie forever dormant. It's not uh, possible to be uh, quite as mean as we naturally are when they've passed before us. One fire kindles another. And without that over-trust in human worth, which they show, the rest of us would lie in spiritual stagnancy. You know, it's like just one sentence of, you know, Martin Luther King just does, explodes my heart. Just like, yeah, that has an impact. And I'm not temperamentally a, like a reverential person, but, um, you know, I, I do know when to get down on my knees. And, um, and in that bowing, in that kind of like reverence for goodness, it's not, it's not this kind of like ego to ego comparing mind. It's, um, it's stepping out of the whole realm of comparison. It's like in the bow, we partake in the goodness. And, um, there's something about, um, this time, this season, season of so much, uh, you know, uh, um, of COVID, of George Floyd, of, uh, you know, a politics that's animated by some kind of unadulterated greed, hate, and delusion. And it's like all of that, all of that just makes the the kind of impact of recognizing goodness even deeper somehow. Like I've noticed just the, the kind of the poignancy of touching into goodness amidst a season of grieving is just amplified dramatically. And it, it's really, it's, uh, that's the only thing that makes me cry anymore, actually. So the love um, I saw in this path was um, was not, you know, despite the dukkha. It was it was fully informed by dukkha. Yeah, if I was going to trust a spiritual path, it needed to be rigorously honest about what it's actually like to be human, to not be idealistic, to not be uh, em- embellish whatever, you know? 
And I could sense like, oh yeah, this is like, finally we're actually talking about the human condition. And um, there's this um, beautiful uh, Iranian film, uh, Taste of Cherry, and um, it stars uh, stars this actor, uh, uh, Homayun Urshadi, who um, the character in the film is looking for help to die. And um, the writer, Nicole Krauss, wrote a short story, a fictional story, where Urshadi, the actor, the real actor, was a, was a character in the short story, in the fiction. And the narrator is this dancer who is traveling, you know, with her, her troupe and is kind of in her own existential questions. And, um, and she sees, she sees Urshadi in a Zen garden in, in Kyoto. And uh, that's how she describes it, the narrator. What I knew of love had always stemmed from desire, from the wish to be altered or thrown off course by some uncontrollable force. But in my love for Urshadi, I nearly didn't exist beyond that great feeling. To call it compassion makes it sound like a form of divine love. And it wasn't that. It was terribly human. If anything, it was an animal love, the love of an animal that has been living in an incomprehensible world until one day it encounters another of its kind and realizes that it has been applying its comprehension in the wrong place all along. That is what Dharma love feels like. That sense of remembrance, of recognition, of um, dissolving into it, of embodiment, of aliveness. So Aaron and Dharab both spoke of the, the two wings of awakening, of wisdom, compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh's language is, is often understanding and love. Um, and um, some are jo- drawn to the wisdom side, you know, to the piercing clarity, to the cool equanimity, to the dryness, to the thinning out the fading of phenomena, you know, the, the world getting thinner and thinner and thinner until it's not there at all. Some are drawn to this side of practice and others are drawn to the juiciness of the tenderness of love. And, uh, and there's a question like, yeah, well, should we 
go with our inclination, deepen our strengths, or compensate for um, our where where we're less inclined. And I don't know, I don't know the answer, but my intuition is often first deepen your natural inclination. The most important thing on this path is to keep going. Yeah. And until we get to the point where we, we cannot turn back, there's a certain kind of fragility of our path. Until we have the sense of like, oh yeah, to stop practice would be to abandon my heart in some fundamental way. And it's just not even on the table. Like there's a certain fragility and so there's value in just finding, you know, path of less resistance. Go with the natural inclination. And then at some point we have to round out our capacities. Yeah. Then at some point we round out our capacities because um, unbalanced spiritual power can be bad. People who feel their wisdom entitles them to ignore the ordinary tenets of kindness or something. This is dangerous. How we we express love, that's going to be different. It's based on a lot of temperamental characteristics. And... Um, some people it is in that kind of uh, effervescent, you know, just a lot of um, kind of geyser of feeling of, of love. And then other times it's much quieter. I heard um, uh, Jesse, Jesse Vega Fry, a teacher in this room, say some, describe a one, one, monks metta as being like light from distant stars. Yeah. Like light from distant stars. That, that's a certain kind of love too. There are um, deep connections between uh, love and wisdom. Love is always... Uh, is always attuned and um, if in a way if empathy isn't accurate it's not empathy right it's like to misconstrue to be misconstrued is painful and so we actually make more and more vivid our own inner landscape such that we, the range of, of states with which we can empathize and the depth with which we can empathize grows. Again, Thich Nhat Hanh. If you pour a handful of salt into a cup of water, the water becomes undrinkable. But if you pour the salt into, into a river, people can continue to draw the water to cook, wash, and drink. The river is immense and it has the capacity to receive, embrace, and transform. 
when our hearts are small, our understanding and compassion are limited and we suffer. We can't accept or tolerate others and their shortcomings and we demand that they change. But when our hearts expand, the same things don't make us suffer anymore. We have a lot of understanding and compassion and can embrace others. We accept others as they are and then they have a chance to transform. Understanding someone's suffering is the best gift you can give another person. Understanding is love's other name. If you don't understand, you can't love. Understanding is love's other name. Yeah. It's really theme of this retreat. Love is, is necessary at uh, various points on the path. To learn will take some love. The truth of, uh, of dukkha that needs to be mourned for a long time, that takes love. Much of our anxiety, pain thrives on some dimension of avoidance. And the antidote is approaching. And love is the fullest form of approach. The knot of self is like a wound. And when we can see it with some sense of spaciousness, it's so obvious that it warrants our love. You know, like all the places of contraction, all the places we get stuck, all the places we get arrogant, all the places where it's just there's a kind of in, egoic investment in being this or that or another. And when you get down to it, so, so much of our thinking is, is kind of like licking the wound of self. Now that's kind of a repulsive <laughs> phrase. But um, so um, yeah, to be to be congealed as something is a very fertile ground for dukkha. We fall in love with this path. We actually fall in love with this path. And that process kind of parallels some of the ways we fall in love with a person or stay in love with a person. We depend on the love of the Sangha of teachers to be a mirror, both to um, highlight our neurosis, you know, and also to highlight our goodness. 
I, th- I think some people kind of learn their lovability only through the eyes of another. And that happens in Sangha. That happens in spiritual friendship. At some stages in the the development of our understanding, we are in very regressed states. We are in, you know, can be very disorienting or terrifying. And and we need somebody just to say uh, that it's okay. Keep going, keep going. And so there's um, there's love in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. And there's love quiet and loud, quiet and dramatic. This is how our practice manifests in the world. This is the, the face of of emptiness is love. Sometimes it's quiet. My teacher, um, Shinzen Young, would say, like, uh, just, just at the end of a retreat, like, you will transmit the Dharma through your pores. Let, let your life be a kind of quiet blessing for that which you encounter. That we're not evangelizing, we're not uh, pushing anything. It's just like, yeah, let, let us be a kind of cause of a r- ripple of love, of care. Just that, just that, to just propagate care through our networks, that is not trivial. And so we infuse our, our relationships to the extent we can with the, the, the Brahma Viharas. And sometimes we uh, have to step up more directly. We, uh, we must evolve ethically. The world is like begging for us to evolve, begging for our species to evolve. And mostly we talk about sila in the negative, what we refrain from doing, what we refrain from doing. But what do we owe positively to each other? And what, what if the bliss of blamelessness, what if the bliss of blamelessness actually entails more than abstaining from overt harm? Now I get, I get, we're tired and depleted and Many of you are giving so much already, yeah? And the practice is to regenerate your own heart's capacity, and that's beautiful. And when there's energy, when there's energy, we look outwards. 
There's a certain way in which our sense of our ethical being again is a little too static, you know, like we decide what we care about, we decide how we're going to live, and then we just do that. But I much prefer a vision of like ethical elasticity, yeah, where our development as an ethical creature is wild and tumultuous and unpredictable. What is asked of us, what is asked of us, we take our cues from the prevailing norms too deeply, too seriously. What does goodness entail? That's a deep question. What do my values already commit me to doing? It's a deep question. This is very sticky, egoic terrain. Because what I notice in myself is I want to think of myself as a good person and I don't want to change my behavior. The identification of self as good, that runs deep. But practice helps us deal with a sense, with the, the hallmark of ego, which is defensiveness. It helps us begin to open up to a sense of moral incoherence. To tolerate that, to grow, to evolve ethically. The growing pains of the heart feel like grieving. Every generation, I think, feels like they're the pivotal generation, you know. Um, But this one might actually be it, you know, like this one might actually matter a lot. This is um, Toby Ord. The threats to humanity and how we address them define our time. The advent of nuclear weapons posed a real risk of human extinction in the 20th century. With the continued acceleration of technology and without serious efforts to protect humanity, there's strong reason to believe the risk will be higher this century and increasing with each century that technological progress continues. Because these human-generated risks outstrip all natural risks combined, they set the clock on how long humanity has left to pull back from the brink. I am not claiming that extinction is inevitable or even the most likely outcome. What I am claiming is that there's been a robust trend towards increases in the power of humanity which has reached a point where we pose a serious risk to our own existence. Recognizing that people matter equally wherever they are in time is a crucial 
next step in the ongoing story of humanity's moral progress. Our own generation is but one page in a much longer story and that our most important role may be how we shape or fail to shape that story. This approach is animated by a moral reorientation toward the vast future that existential risks threaten to foreclose. That's, that's the long term. So the long term questions. But even right now, even right now, we know what it takes to save a life. We know roughly how much it costs to save a life, something like four or $5,000. We know what to do. And, um, and that number of, of $5,000, it's getting more expensive because fewer and fewer people are dying needlessly. Thank God. So what is the place of Dharma in all of this? Mm. Question is like um, to use language from, from like the medical world, like what is the scope of practice of the Dharma? Yeah. Scope of practice. Okay. And, and doctors do this. Nurse practitioners can do this. Physicians assistants do this. That's their scope of practice. What's the scope of practice of the Dhamma? Is it supposed to save me or the world or both? I I was um, finishing just a couple minutes. I I, I was reading the suttas and... um, and in a new sense, I got this, this, this feeling of the, the, the Buddha, like looking out on the world, looking out on samsara, and it just like breaking his heart. As if he cared so much about suffering that uh, he just kind of, and saw the endlessness of samsara, the endlessness of it, and turned his attention to what he could manage to free his heart. And since it began, this lineage of practice has really been a Nibbana-centric lineage, a liberation-oriented. And liberation is in the language of the, the mission of IMS to this day. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. And yet, dukkha is an interdisciplinary problem. It needs all different kinds of medicine, and the Dharma is one of those, those medicines, one of those disciplines. And there is, um, 
there's so much wisdom in the world. There's so much genius in the world. There's like so much goodness in the world. There's so many traditions that have been cultivated. Um, and um, yeah. And so I feel my view and our practice can be Nibbana centric, yeah, but then our debt to others doesn't end there. There is, in other words, love. And so we cultivate wisdom, we cultivate love, we cultivate freedom. And then how will we spend it? We generate a kind of, through practice, we generate a kind of surplus of well-being. And we spend it and we know that that comes with some suffering. We enter with consent to that agreement. And so, um, yeah, the question uh, for you is uh, how will you spend your love? Sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.